record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Uh, hey, Steph, it's Dan. We're just about to get started on the Polycast Christmas Special 2018. See you Skype online in a way. And uh, just so you know, I put this on speakerphone, and it's being recorded, but it's not being live streamed, which is a good thing, because your phone number was just said, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to bleep that out. Don't worry about it. Uh, see you shortly. Bye. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was a little different from how you usually call her. <laughs> Welcome, welcome to the 2018 Polycast Christmas Special. I'm Dan Q, joined by fellow regular co-hosts, the Mian Team. I've got gifts, and you're taking them whether you want them or not. And Mega Bears fan, Barry Krampus, seasons beatings. Indeed, I do like that. It looks like they're expanding the uh, unit upgrade trees. Looks like there's a skirmisher unit that's an upgrade to a scout that uh, is filling a massive gap. I think in the unit upgrade trees. And it looks like there's also a Courser unit that's a light cavalry between horsemen and cavalry. So that's also a massive gap. So I'm wondering if we'll also get things like trebuchets and maybe hopefully some medieval naval units so that you're not going into the Renaissance with just galleys anymore. Later on, it says there's a Courser unit that's concept, so we don't know for sure if that's actually in the game. I wonder if that would be like a medieval privateer kind of thing. That would be kind of cool. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Indeed. From Northern Light, I would like to see Civ 7 be more realistic when it comes to art style. I hate the art style in Civ 6, but love the art style in Civ 5. I guess that kind of down to what you mean to be more realistic. Honestly, when it comes to the art style, can I read what's on the screen? Yeah, I don't care either way after that. Are the color palettes complementary? They don't clash, and it makes it so that the user interface is easier to find, even if the user interface itself is lacking in some information, then the art style, I'm fine with it. As I've said before, I really like how informative Civ 6's visuals are, how much of the game state you can see just by looking at the map, the district mechanics and stuff like that. You can see every district, every building that's in the district is right there on the map. You don't have to go into a separate screen to see it. You can actually see what infrastructure your opponents have. You know, I like that you can see which improvements are being worked. I wish they had a some kind of graphic for working a tile that doesn't have an improvement on it, kind of like how Civ 4 had like a little hut that would just show up if you were working an unimproved tile. That's something that I I feel is missing. But regardless of the art style, I would not want to see the map go back to being as uninformative as Civ V was. So if they want to put in more realistic graphics, as long as it still conveys as much or more information to the player, I would be okay. For this special, we're breaking it up into two. 
We asked for input, as we usually do on our annual Christmas special, from you, our listeners, saying in advance thanks to a number of users on Civilization Fanatic Center over at civfanatics.com for their questions. A lot of them happen to be directed for me. It might have something to do with this is my last recording as a regular panelist on the show. We're not going to go into the reasons behind that and lamenting or celebrating it or a combination of two. That was episode 327, although there'll be a bit of a bleed over here onto this. But then I'm going to be handing it over to Phil and Jason at certain times to give us a little bit more on what we're learning about the second Civilization VI expansion pack, Gathering Storm, set to be released on February 14th, 2019. And by the time you were listening to the special, it might already have been released, and what we're saying has been proven or disproven. It has happened before on the show, and I'm certain it'll happen again. But uh, I'm going to start with the first question that we received from Sad Squid. Ah, not sad squid. Oh, is your ink running dry? Yeah, I just thought of that off the top of my head. That's why going I straight for the dad jokes. Yeah, absolutely. We'll miss you, Dan. You've done an incredible job for many years, both behind the scenes and on the show. Your playful comments and your sometimes quite terrible dad jokes <laughs> gave the show an inviting, friendly feel. All the best for your future plans. I hope we'll still hear you occasionally as a guest. A few questions for your consideration. What is your favorite Civilization game, and how do you feel about how the franchise has been progressing in recent entries? <sighs> oh man, my favorite Civilization game. Without spending a while uh, dissecting what it means favorite, giving a definition, giving examples, having a top ten list of the top ten things that I look at when I'm deciding on a Civilization game. I'm going to have to give this to Civilization 4. You didn't ask for my reasons why what my is my favorite Civilization game. You didn't ask me to explain. Yes, I know, here's the teacher coming through. You just asked me what my favorite Civ title is, and it's really Civilization 4 that helped Polycast come into being, that helped create the Turncast Saturday games, that led to my getting to know a lot of people online like I wouldn't have been able to otherwise and get to know them beyond just talking about the game. It's easier to have conversations about off-topic things when you're talking to them verbally as opposed to online. Not saying there's anything wrong with off-topic forums on civilization forums and otherwise, but between that and then conversations over Skype and Discord and just kind of that checking in has been really fantastic. Back to the game itself, how do I feel about how the franchise has been progressing in recent entries? I think it's been a good thing that Firaxis has continued to focus on the PC, the computer line, for Civilization. I know there was Civilization Revolution, which they did develop for those third-generation consoles. Yeah, that was released ooh, 11 years ago now. The <laughs> it was fun, don't get me wrong. I think they did a very good job at it. But I felt it kind of slowed things down on the computer side. And while I was initially hesitant to see... 2K Games, which owns Firaxis Games, and they own the Civilization license, license it out to other companies because some of them have been absolutely a dud. Let's not even talk about Civilization Revolution 2, Civilization Revolution 2+, uh, the whole Civilization World thing. But the fact that seeing Civilization come back to the console platform while at the same time continuing to be developed for the PC and also the mobile platform. It's helping to spread the addiction that is Civ, and I think each one of those titles can be enjoyed in their own right, and there's definitely some crossover there, and we've talked about that before. So I, I think the 
progress on that front, as well as continuing to take into account the Civ community's feedback from hardcore Civers like ourselves and perhaps a bit more general Civ players, even though they're not communicating that they're listening to us. You know, there isn't a lot of interaction with the developers and the publishers like there used to be, so I've, I've been missing that. But the fact that they're listening, the fact that they're still developing the game, we're not always agreeing with the decisions that they make and the order in which they make them and how they make them, but there definitely isn't a feel like... Oh, well, we've released the title. Okay, we're over and done with. On to Civilization 2019. On to Civilization 2020. That there is that progress. So overall, I think it's been progressing very well. And if you're thinking, Dan, that was a really long-winded answer. I was only looking for a few sentences. Fine. Here's your too-long-didn't-listen answer. We're still playing the game. So I guess the game is progressing just, just fine. What are your favorite games outside of Civ? There haven't been that many, honestly, but I would say outside of Civilization, I definitely have to give a nod to Minecraft, without a doubt. Before Minecraft, there was the Need for Speed series of uh, computer games. SimCity, rest in peace SimCity, and not, I'm not talking about the reboot SimCity either. And yeah, and since it also actually came up in the thread on Civ Fanatics, in addition to Minecraft, yes, there was Town of Salem. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Your role is Jester. <laughs> but I actually think my favorite games outside of Civ recently have been some cooperative board games that my wife and I have been playing. We have played Pandemic, but I've, I've got to give a shout out to Castle Panic and its three expansion packs have been a lot, a lot of fun. Bonus question for Dan. Now that you're leaving the show, you can be totally honest. Who is your favorite and more importantly, least favorite co-host? <laughs> Let's be clear. My favorite co-host is me. <laughs> That's a silly question. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And my least favorite co-host would be whoever it is that doesn't show up for the recording and said they were going to be there. Man, how did I fail this? (laughs) Not trolly enough, Phil. Not trolly enough. Come on. Even after referencing that double jester game? Really? Okay. (laughs) All right. Looks like Dan is a glutton for abuse. Duly noted. Joined by Maggie. Hi, I required caffeination first. There was a question directed not to me specifically in the input requested for this special, so I'm going to hand it over to Mackie, Phil, Jason, the combination of the three to answer. What is the right way to fix seeding cities? And question two, why does Firaxis not fix it? And I'm pretty certain in the context of Civilization VI. (laughs) Seeing as how the request for input came in the Civ VI general discussion forum of Civ Fanatics. Well, yeah. Unless we're going to go IRL, but... It's a little bit too politicast for the holidays, I think, so we should probably keep it roughly in the realm of Civ. <laughs> I think there should actually be an incentive to seed cities, rather than a disincentive, personally, and that it should mean something to do it. Why Fraxis doesn't do it, I don't know. There's a lot of things that Fraxis doesn't do that I am very, uh, not, I'm, I don't want to say very, but I'm not in agreement with at all. And uh, this is one of them. It's not my top pick, but uh, stuff like this just makes you scratch your head a little bit. Like why they've left seeding cities in the state it's been for so long. Isn't it supposed to alleviate the um, occupation penalty that prevents growth? Yeah, but that doesn't exist after you end the war. So is the problem with the city seeding or is the problem with the fact that they don't continue to apply that penalty after the war ends? It seems I mean, like that's, that's what debatable. The- 
it seems like that was what the intent was, right? Because I think that's what the description says is supposed to happen. Like when you hover over the cities in rebellion or whatever the heck the thing says on the city panel. Yeah. I think maybe one of the reasons they didn't do that is because they don't have a proper war score and peace force system in any of the Civ games, but that certainly holds true for Civ 6 as well. So if you made the mechanic work that way, people could basically grief by just refusing the peace out ever uh, until they're dead. Right. Yeah, so the idea in principle seems to be flawed. You'd also think there would probably be a loyalty penalty or something like that for cities that weren't seated. Uh, yeah. I have no idea if that's implemented at all, because I don't think I've ever seen it's anything not. like that. But that seems like that would also be a common sense penalty to apply to somebody who does not have the city seated. But yeah, there needs to be some kind of a war score or war goal mechanic where you, the, a person has to seed the city under certain conditions. Otherwise, like you said, the people could just refuse to do it, and then it's a pointless mechanic. And maybe they realize that, but they didn't actually remove the mechanic. Yeah, or maybe they have plans for it in the future. I don't know, but man, it's been a few years since the game is out now, and it's still well, in that state. So we're going on two expansions, and they haven't done anything with it. So I mean, unless there's something in Gathering Storm that they haven't told us about yet, including things they could have done with it. Right, like well, you're you saying like it, it has some potential here. The, you would have thought that the last expansion with the loyalty mechanic would have done something there because that loyalty mechanic was exactly for things like this. Yeah. Or at least things tangential to this, but they didn't do anything with it. So I don't know. Maori. Led by Kupe has a historical agenda, which I'm not going to try and pronounce since we had trouble just calling them by the right name. Let's see. Kupe's keeping an eye on you. You're chopping, making national parks and woods, and how much you're doing with CO2 emissions. So treat the planet well, or at least better than your neighbors. Otherwise, he's going to be up in your face going, excuse you. So he's a hippie. Yes, I like this, though. I'm just going to refer to him as Captain Planet. (laughs) (laughs) uh, They should put some, uh, like, references to that in his dialogue every once in a while. Like you can be a planeteer too, or something. But not like not perfectly obvious, but still very obvious. They begin the game with being in the ocean. <laughs> uh, that's what they did. It. You also gain a free builder and plus one population when you settle your first city. So that's them trying to make up for the fact that you're going to lose some turns until you find some land. Palace has plus three housing, plus one amenity, plus two science, plus two culture per turn. I am a little bit disappointed with a lot of the uniques in Civ 6 that I wish they had more civs like Venice in Civ 5 that play really differently than other civs. And I feel like we haven't really got any of those yet in Civ 6. And this looks like it's the closest that we've gotten so far to having a civ like Venice back in the game. Sounds pretty cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to actually trying that. And I'm glad to see this civ uh, in Civ 6 because I, I remember Polynesia was in Civ 5. And that was a Civ that I always wanted to play and write a strategy guide for, but I just never got around to it. Like, it was next on my list, and then Civ 6 was announced, and I was like, oh, don't have to play Civ 5 anymore. And uh, <laughs> so I'm glad I'll get a second stab at being able to play that Civ this time around. Yeah, the special ability is you start the game with the sailing and shipbuilding technologies unlocked, because otherwise you couldn't go across the ocean tiles. Durr. But also, embark units are plus 5 to combat strength and plus 2 to movement. Ooh, speedy. Unimproved woods and rainforest are plus one production, becoming plus two once you get to conservation. 
Uh, fishing boats provide plus one food and a culture bomb to adjacent tiles. Oh, it's like with the outback stations. Because those culture bomb the tiles around them when you build them. And here's the thing. You know, he, they were talking about saying he's watching your chops. Yeah, well, they don't harvest resources at all. That's a pretty big disadvantage. <laughs> I mean, they're nerfing chopping in the next patch, but they're nerfing overflow specifically. I mean, it isn't nerfed chopping yeah. in general, but you cannot overflow bonus production towards one thing into another thing. You'll just get the base production. Hopefully that works Is because really when bad? they tried to quote unquote fix that in Civ 4, they broke it and never fixed it to this day where overflow just doesn't work in Civ 4 anymore. Is, and that's uh, really annoying. To say that they're nerfing chop and overflow or that they're fixing it. I mean, it's it's just, <laughs> it's however you want to call it in this case. I mean, yes, they're fixing it, but it's definitely making it weaker. So it's still a nerf, question mark. But yeah, it does it does note that the features can still be removed, but you don't get any yield out of it. That almost kind of like makes it worse because now it's like they're being wasteful. <laughs> if you're going to chop it, you should use it. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's sort of a, I want to call it an out of game thing. Because if you were, if players couldn't remove anything at all, somebody would complain about that. Oh, yeah, it'd be pretty annoying, especially if you want to place a district or something and you couldn't even do that. I'd say there should be be like exceptions for that, but I do kind of feel like it's a little bit cop out, kind of. I guess we'll have to see how it plays out. I mean, I'm glad that there is the time back to the special ability of the plus two movement for your embarked units because my kind of my initial take was so how many turns before we see land? And uh, and then, of course, you're going to have to probably take a turn to get to the coast before you can actually then disembark and then settle. Apparently, the Maori also cannot generate great writers. The disconnect, just based on what we already know already, I'm not certain what the point of that is. It doesn't seem to fit anything else. It is a little strange. That makes no sense. They have plenty of tales and stories that they tell in a verbal type of thing, even if it wasn't written down until the English showed up. That it's all oral tradition and that they're not writing. But, like, I mean, I always think that was an abstraction anyway. Yeah. And this is a game where we're, like, doing ridiculous stuff with each of the civilizations that go way beyond the scope of their history, no matter which civ it is. Like, super early era America or late era Egypt. Come on now. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And we already have the Kree in the game. They could write, but not these guys. These guys suck. I'm like, what? Yeah, and you have Norway, who's kind of like, not exactly Vikings, but related to them, who would have passed their stories down with oral tradition first until they learned writing. It's like, what? That makes no sense to me. But see, here's the thing. They don't make great writers, yet their unique building, a thing that goes in the theater square, it replaces an amphitheater. <laughs> what do you do with the amphitheater? What do they do? I mean, yes, you can do music in the but plays. That was the original thing with amphitheaters and ay ay ay. Anyway, well, I think that would kind of make sense, right? Because if you're not generating great writings, you would want something besides the amphitheater. Because the thing about the amphitheater is you put great writings in it. So, I mean, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Also, it has no great work slots. Full stop. Right. <laughs> it's like, what? Let's go into the yields here. Yields plus two culture and faith. All the city's tiles with the passable feature. What does it mean with passable feature? Like you can I, move through it. Move probably, unit on not it. mountains, basically. Okay. Not mountain, not ice. Yeah. Not Ma- not the Matterhorn and not Mount Everest. Got it. <laughs> and after flight is research received plus two tourism to all of the city's tiles with a feature, passable or not. It costs you no maintenance, but it has no great work slots. Okay. <laughs> I think it would at least have like a relic slot or something, you know? Yeah. No slots whatsoever. That's bizarre. If you're going <sighs> to... There's maybe something for access for the, the day one or day 30 patch. I, I think this maybe needs a relic slot. Day 30 patch. <laughs> day 30. Well... Uh, that's probably a more honest guess, but it still sounds funny. 
Unique unit-wise, they have the Toa. It has the Haka War Dance ability, which weakens adjacent enemy units by minus five. There was um Oh, I'm trying to think what unit was it in Civilization 5 that when it got adjacent, there was the... It was scaring the units. Who was that? I think the Polynesian unit did that. Yeah. That's it. That's yeah. it. Polynesian did that. Each Toa appears to have one build charge for creating a paw, the paw improvement, which adds plus four defense strength and heals a unit if it ends the turn on its tile. Wow. It's a neat little mini fort. Yeah. Here's the tower replaces the swordsman, since the swordsman was missing from the Marai tech tree that must have come up during the live stream, but it's currently unknown where the Toa is unlocked. Okay. Somebody looked at the tech tree playing it and you didn't have swordsman, but they oh, don't know yet where it's unlocked. Yeah. So my guess would probably be same place, plus we hear differently. Looking back at the input requested thread on CFC, uh, Morning Com's first question to me was, what is your favorite civilization in the Civ series and which Civ games incarnation was it? To answer that question already. What is your favorite mechanic in a Civ game? Oh, man. Again, not really defining favorite here, but just for the lulls, espionage in Civilization Beyond Earth. Oh, man. And here I thought oh. you were going to say slavery. <laughs> you have to get the PC answer, Dan. Okay, if I want, if I'm really going kind of crazy here, that would be constructing Leonardo's workshop in Civilization Two. <laughs> Wait, that's not a mechanic. Uh, <laughs> it sort of is using slavery to finish wonders. No, that's me. <laughs> that caused the rage quit. That was great. <laughs> I miss privateers with nationality. My only regret is I wasn't part of that transaction, and anyone got to witness it. Suggestions for how Civ Seven should be similar to or different from Civ Six. That's a very difficult question to answer specifically, but I think the approach that Firaxis Games has taken since Civilization IV development, which was a third old, a third new, a third modified, is something that overall has been two steps forward and one step back by the time we get to the end of the development of certain Civ titles, not necessarily along the way. What is your favorite leader or historical fact that you have discovered from playing Civ? That's Morningcom's last question. Okay, first off, I haven't discovered any historical facts from playing Civilization. It was from historical facts that I went to Civilization, but Civilization is not an historical simulator, so I'm just going to set that aside right there. As for my favorite leader, that would be Genghis Khan. Why Genghis Khan? Part of that's the real-life thing, who he was really, what he managed to accomplish, having the large, contiguous land empire... Man, there's got to be something to be said for that, so I always got to give props to Genghis Khan. Even if I'm not a super fan of how he's been implemented in the game, nothing jumps out as, well, this is a really bad implementation of Genghis Khan. It's just absolutely my favorite leader, because he's somebody who should be represented in the game. And also, as the Mongols themselves, the way that they organize themselves, being very, very different from your traditional, okay, let's settle a city and develop this and then spread our culture. Let's, you know, let's just move from place to place for people who are already established and then work to maintain that control. That's pretty impressive. Yay, Genghis. Going back a bit to the question about how Civ 7 should be different to Civ 6 and tying into to Genghis, I would really hope that Civ 7 has actual playable nomadic civilizations. Man, you'd have to, like, they're completely different mechanic, though. That would be so different mechanically from yeah, a normal... But I, I, I hope they try to tackle that. I wonder if they're doing with with uh, Maori in Gathering Storm is to try to dip their toe into that. I mean, it's really just a very short-lived thing, right? Because you're going to have to settle a city to be able to do anything meaningfully. 
But they also did that in Beyond Earth Rising Tide with the mobile aquatic cities. That was also kind of felt to me like a dipping their toe into the idea of having actual nomadic civs where you have cities, but like your cities move, right? Like they're settlements that move. Yeah. But then they didn't do anything further with that. It's, I guess it wasn't received well by players and fans or whatever. I think a lot of that was the implementation of yeah, it. it. it I mean, the idea was fantastic. There was not really much reason to do it. And in fact, reasons not to do it. Right, yeah, that too. So they just were like, all right, well, that didn't work, so scrap it. You know, I'd also put in Civ Five like Austria, where you could buy city-states through the diplomatic marriage. I thought that was oh, a, yeah. a pretty different oh, yes. game mechanic. Speaking of Gathering Storm, we also learned some things about storms and droughts from the live stream that the Maori were discussed. May reduce city population. That's going to be that's going to be love. Yeah, they, they spawn and then move across the map. So <sighs> tornadoes are ridiculous. Like <laughs> to, to affect an army. Come on, it would have to be a very very specific hit tornado. <laughs> Even then, like, if your army is spread out, like, at all, it, there's no way. But I guess it's just damaging units, so I guess, question mark. But these are all pretty big reaches, because we're talking, like, advancing 40 to, to several. Even in the mid to late game, there's still a couple of years per turn. And uh, hurricanes don't last two years. They last, well, like... <laughs> again, it's it's an abstraction. The idea I know, but this was a... 40-year period in which there were more or stronger hurricanes than usual. So <laughs> A 40-year period where the hurricanes smacked your army around multiple times. In the inter- hey, I, know. The army I know it's an abstraction, but 40 years, so... It seems like a big reach to model this in a game set on this scale. And I, I'm still not convinced the mechanic is worth uh, in terms of its interactability, but I'm still holding judgment until we actually play with it. And it does seem less bad than the Civ 4 events, which were a disgrace. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. At least these so be able to see them coming. Well, there's you can see them coming, and I haven't yet to see anything that can be quite as game changing. Like you're not going to get your army completely wiped out per this. Although, I mean, it, it might be that in a close fight, but that's not going to happen very often. Whereas something like the Vitagarians, or like you lose several hundred hammers in the early game, or you lose your entire navy, like that kind of stuff has no place in a turn-based strategy game, and that was a thing in so far. That I'm not seeing that here, so it's certainly better than that. But we'll see. We'll see. The Plus, I kind of raise an eyebrow at getting fertility added by a Category 5 hurricane, having been through a few hurricanes. I'm not sure where that fertility <laughs> is coming from, but okay, game, whatever. Yeah, that sounds like that <laughs> might be more just a, a gamification thing. It's like they're throwing you a bone rather than yeah. uh, anything based on like legitimate actual storms. But hey, if you don't want to get hit by hurricanes, don't settle on the coast, I guess. I guess. We'll see if that works. I mean, yeah. the, 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 what about tornadoes? There's only a couple <laughs> tornado alleys in the world in real so, life. But Sorry, uh, Maori. You, you hurricane spawned on turn two and wiped out uh, your uh, starting settler. Yeah. Never mind that historically where they were, they, the hurricanes are pretty rare, comparatively speaking. Yeah. Yeah, there's the aspect of, okay, we're reacting to it. How can we react to it? How much time are we going to have to react to it? And what can we do proactively? I mean, for example, and noted on the Well of Souls, all storms can damage units, though according to Ed, so Ed Beachley designer, Russian units are immune to blizzards. And just as an aside for what's apparently up and coming, oh, so Russian units are immune to blizzards, but not Canadian units, huh? Yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> well, how many times has Canada like, been invaded? Is you? I'm not bitter. Uh... <laughs> 
Hurricanes are named and categorized according to severity. Category 4 is about 3 hexes across. Category 5 is about 4 hexes across. Come on. Category 4 should be 4 hexes across, and Category 5 should be 5 hexes across. There should be a correlation between the category of hurricane and the number of hexes that it is. Come on. Learn math. Okay. I'm still also still not better. little OCD, Dan. But Are they going to actually like do more damage near the eye than the edge? Yeah. There's something for you. Because there's a big difference, actually. Also, there's also a difference when I see looking at the screenshots here. Category 5 hurricane, crippling blizzard, tornado outbreak. So when I hear tornado outbreak, see, I'm not just thinking one tornado, okay? That, that's, that's... <laughs> it's like a disease <laughs> outbreak. It's just tornadoes <laughs> everywhere. They're contagious. <laughs> Bring in Texas, what? You gave me tornadoes. I'm just waiting for the special leader ability. This can summon natural disasters. Wait, no. No. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, wait, this isn't a fantasy game. Just uh, giving up. Plague Doctor masks to all your citizens. Wear these to stop the tornadoes. Yeah, yeah, there you go. I'm sure that'll work. Just like when you get to the nuclear age. Hey, kids, duck under your desks. School desks will protect you from nuclear blasts. <laughs> That's just science. It's all the lead in the bottom part of the school desk. And the pencils, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> School's the safest place you can be. Oh, dear. It's noted in the in-game tooltip that as the global temperature from greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere... I'm assuming rises, uh, the chance of the, that a storm will occur increases. Using cleaner sources of energy reduces the global temperature increase and then mitigates the chance of storms. I hope that's not the only way to mitigate the chance of these storms because using cleaner energy sources, because we're going to be able to do that from the start of the game, right? Ha 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 ha. Well, or are think, they going to make storms more likely if you pollute and I then think, uh, you have a baseline that's just there otherwise? Yeah. I think Probably. the idea here is that this is supposed to be something that's supposed to give us more to do in the later parts of the game, where it's like an extra challenge to overcome, you know, kind of like Beyond Earth had the aliens and the miasma and all that stuff at the start of the game. They're kind of transferring that stuff to the end of the game in the hopes that it's maybe less of a slog of hitting end turn to just get to an end screen. So it's actually something to do. Whether or not it'll actually work well for that is yet to be determined, but I get the feeling that that's kind of the idea. That's kind of an interesting idea, because I would, just like as in real life, our ability in-game to deal with storms and deal with droughts would improve as the game went on. That this would have the chance to be more catastrophic early on, giving us something more to do, more to deal with early on, or feeling the effects of it longer term early on. Well, they feel like there needs to be more late game, because uh, players are not, they're saying the game gets boring, but... It's not going to fix it. No, I think the better advantage will be gathering Storm's notion of the stockpiling of the resources and the quantifiable resources, which is, hey, oh, no, I guess we need to go and actually settle this empty landmass. None of this is going to fix the light game, though. It can't. <laughs> when the game is over, it needs to end. Oh, and well. Until they are willing to do that, none of this will change. Oh, no, it doesn't matter how many mechanics you add or change or modify. Just to the notion of having the light game feel less boring, I don't think Storm's are going to cut it. Well, it looks like there is going to be some kind of World Congress mechanic coming back, so maybe there will be some way to diplomatically end the game earlier than it would otherwise end. Yeah, but it's a broken incentive, because like, nobody who's trying should ever vote for someone else to win in a only one winner game. <laughs> well, unless it's something where like Civ Five had, at one point, mechanics where certain Civs couldn't vote for themselves, so you had to vote for someone else. I guess, but then you would just pick somebody who's unpo- who's like otherwise unpopular. Like that's the only thing it does is <laughs> it formalizes what the sieve that's in the in the back, and then that sieve ends up winning. <laughs> I guess in in practice that's not going to happen though. It, <laughs> it just formalizes what you would get in a normal MP game where everyone just calls it because uh, it's over basically. 
Yeah, going from the ability to be able to vote for yourself to just being kingmaker, you got to have a, the, the notion, we talked about this before on the show, the idea of a shared victory, then a mechanic like that yeah. towards as being part of a victory condition makes sense. Yeah, I'd rather see a shared cooperative victory than yeah. something. Yeah, we need a shared co-op, not more fun ways of doing that. Oh, and by the way, I, I'm sorry, I should be politically correct. I don't just mean king-making, I mean queen-making or monarch-making. <laughs> sorry if I offended anybody out there. Yikes. Uh, I gotta be careful. Uh, <laughs> no way. Don't take that, Sass. What about droughts? Looks like drought events can also occur, and their effects are that they pillage farms, camps, plantations, and pastures, and those improvements cannot be rebuilt until the drought ends. For the duration of the drought, all affected tiles have one less food than usual. Apparently, you can counteract a drought with the construction of an aqueduct or a dam. Droughts target areas that are devoid of all features. Yeah, I mean, this okay. So the building an aqueduct or a dam in your city to prevent the food loss from the drought. So it'll, of course, the pillaging will then still happen, but you won't get the one less food than usual. As we see in a screenshot on Well of Souls, there's your grassland that is now down to two food instead of three. Okay. However, droughts target areas that are devoid of all features. As for keeping some woods, rainforest, or marsh near your cities to lessen the chance that a drought will strike, I mean, that makes sense. Certainly from the drought from getting worse as well, because then it just, oh, it runs up against a wall of trees. And that's that. No more dust to kick up. Right. So this would be a, another mechanic that is seems designed to mitigate or nerf chopping. Because now if you chop everything, then you risk more droughts happening. Yeah. So there's a trade-off kind of thing going on. I still think you're probably still going to be farther ahead by going ahead chopping. Not not necessarily indiscriminately, but... Especially if you use the chopped production to just build an aqueduct or a dam, which apparently... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Droughts ...anyway, and then you just keep one builder hanging around with one charge and just camp him there until the drought's over, and then just over a few turns repair everything. I'm not even certain I would do that, because you're not going to be able to repair anything until the drought is over. So it's like, okay, well, here's the drought. I guess I'll start constructing that builder now. Yeah. Not saying you couldn't do it, but I, I don't think I'm going to have one hanging around just for that. Uh, we'll see when we actually get our hands on the game how to best deal with stuff like that. Elsewise, from the input requested thread on Civ Fanatics from Eric24. Hi, Dan. I think this is asking, what was my favorite question to respond to on Polycast? There was no any one question. The favorite questions to respond to on Polycast were questions that were provided by people who were listening to the show and gave us feedback. Whether it was the mailbag, which then became open mic when we came into the live format, because A, some weeks it would save me on having to set as many topics, thank you, but also it gave us a chance to engage with the audience further. And that's how we ended up getting some, actually quite a few guests onto the show, is because the people would ask, how come I got invited? Well, because you were asking questions about what we were talking about on the show. Wasn't exclusively that, but it, de it definitely did help. From Timothy001, uh, speaking of guests on the show, how about the most memorable incident on Polycast, good or bad, that you personally just can't forget? All right, the bad, and I've actually, this was alluded to earlier this year, there was someone who agreed to come onto the show. <laughs> it was in the first season, and he got onto the call, and he said, oh my god, what the fuck? And then disconnected. I'm remembering that because he went through the process. Like, I thought he would be a good guest on the show. He just didn't answer. He just didn't answer at all. As for the good, uh, I know, Mac, you remember Sid Meier being on the show for episode 50. Yes. 
And the thing is, it was memorable, but it wasn't the most memorable. I, I think collectively for everybody that was a regular co-host at the time, it would be. But for me, the most memorable incident were uh, in the first year of the show when we got those wrong numbers. <laughs> And the voicemails who thought that they were leaving. I still remember someone left a, Mar- a message for Martin, and then Martin called leaving a message for Cedric. And then I ended up getting hold of two of the three people, and I got a chance to say, hey, I don't suppose you perhaps play Civilization, which led to one of my favorite sound bites of all time. When I said, hey, you don't perchance play Civilization. He's like, Civilization. And I said, a computer game. And he's like, uh, no. Uh, <laughs> like, really? Yeah. yeah, really. Uh, so that's definitely my most, definitely the most memorable. They called the show. <laughs> <laughs> but the best part of that was the voicemail message when you called the show specifically said, this is the voicemail of Polycast. And then this huge explanation, they still left the message. And then there was the person, uh, I forget which one it was, but one of them called the show back saying that they had left a message and they still hadn't heard. So they listened to the voicemail again. It was kind of like, yes, we have content for the show, even though it was... Silliness. Yeah, absolute, absolute silliness. Willowbrook, what life lessons have you learned over the years hosting and producing the podcast? Hurting cats is difficult. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Besides that, balance. Honestly, life, work, balance. And within the life balance, that's the hobby balance, which kind of goes to one of the reasons why, as of 2019, I'm not going to be part of the show anymore. But I think the biggest lesson I learned, and I joked about it earlier, about the quantity over quality, I used to be, and I know in particular Phil and Mackie are going to say, yeah, like you're not anymore. I used to be obsessed with stats for the show. <laughs> but I can <laughs> see. I, it's I, all relative. I, I pre- predicted that. I am a psychic. I knew that was going to be the reaction from at least Mackie. I can honestly say... I have not looked at Polycast stats since the summer, and I can count on one hand the number of times I looked at them this year. It's like, okay, here is the number of people who are listening to it, or at least they think we're listening to it, or even forgetting the interpretation. I'm like, okay, what can I do with that information now? There was a time where it might have been advantageous to try to get advertisers to either advertise on the show or to get advertisements on the website for the show because numbers would be helpful with that. And I learned that, honestly, I would rather have a couple of thousand engaged listeners than 20,000 disengaged listeners. As much as I joke about, you know, you don't have to listen to the podcast, just please download it so it increases the stats, it's nicer to know that we're not just a talking to ourselves when we release these episodes and if people are going to spend time out of their day to provide feedback you know it's one thing to one time press a button to subscribe and you download the episodes you're just a subscriber number but if you take that one time on that one episode to answer the question typically how those questions were answered were not through email they were on you know civilization fan forums you had to create an account for that, you then went to the thread where we were talking about the episode, and then you asked the question, and you thought about the question and how you were going to ask it. And whether you reacted to what we said or not, the fact that people took the time to do that, that told me that that was the real measure for a show when the goal of the show was not to be making money. Like I didn't have to worry about making money, and thanks to Civilization Fanatic Center for ensuring that it don't have to worry about any major costs for the show. So I would say that's, that's the life lesson learned, which I think just goes to life in general, which is I'd rather have 10 people that I know really well than say I've got 50 people that I know a little bit. That's the quality of life right there. 
And then lastly, from this thread, and then we can focus a little bit more on the Gathering Storm stuff here, from, oh, Drew Sane, or also past guest on the show, Turncast participant, or Drew Bell, as he is known on Symphonetics, was there ever a segment idea you wanted to try that just didn't work out? And if it was, was there ever a segment idea that just didn't work out, that would be the initial iteration of the theater, which we've talked about before on this show. (laughs) So it's not that we just wanted to try, we tried it, and it happened exactly once where we would read someone's fiction for Civilization and then dramatize it. Oh. Yeah, as for a segment idea that you wanted to try that just didn't work out, that was having a segment on the show where a modder would talk about a mod, but that would be something that they would pre-record, for example, or they would just come onto the show for five or ten minutes to talk about the mod and then leave. I wanted to try that, but it just seemed completely disconnected from everything else that we were doing. It might have been better than our trying to, like, the one or two times to talk about a mod that we did in the first season. And it's always just better to have the entire separate podcast. So thanks to everyone who submitted questions for our Christmas special. And as we turn our attention back to Gathering Storm, there was a certain other civilization announced that some people on this panel might think I might have a particular opinion on. Hmm. Mm -hmm. If uh, Firaxis Games and 2K are to be believed, everybody in Canada has an ice hockey rink, right? What? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Ice hockey rinks on every tile. I, I mean, if you're going to go to the golf course for Scotland, then <laughs> well, you kind of had precedent for this already. I know it has been 12 years in the making of being able to talk about Canada as a civilization in civilization other than a mod. Did, were you on record for saying that that's where they belong in mods? I think so. I think you did say that in earlier episodes. Yeah, because I I did not feel that Canada, you know, however you try it, I'm just like, no, it does not need to be in civilization. The special ability for Canada, the four faces of peace, cannot declare war on city-states or surprise wars. Well, hell, I'm out. I'm not playing. Get wrecked, no, yeah, 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 he's never playing Canada. <laughs> Bully <do>. this. <laughs> uh, surprise wars cannot be declared on Canada. For every 100 tourism, earn one diplomatic favor. Receive plus 100% diplomatic favor from successfully completing an emergency or scored competition. Okay. The leader bonus, Wilfred Laurier, the last best West, allows farms to be built on tundra terrain. After civil engineering is unlocked, farms can be built on tundra hills. Reduces the cost of purchasing snow, snow hills, tundra hills, and tundra tiles by 50%. Plus 100% extraction rate of accumulated resources on snow, snow hills, tundra hills, and tundra tiles. Historical agenda, the Canadian Expeditionary Force. Like civs who respond to emergencies, dislikes those who don't participate. And the unique unit is the Mountie. Of course. <laughs> Can create a national park. That was my reaction, too. (laughs) Plus five combat strength (laughs) when fighting within two tiles of a national park. Additional plus five combat strength when fighting within two tiles of a national park you own. And as already alluded to, the unique infrastructure is the ice hockey improvement. Plus one amenity, plus one culture for each adjacent tundra, tundra hills, snow, and snow hills tile. Provides tourism from culture once flight is unlocked. Plus two food and production once the professional sports civic is unlocked. Plus four culture if adjacent to a stadium building. Can be built on tundra, tundra hills, snow, and snow hills. One per city, plus two appeal. So, 
where to even start with this? Great save. Five out of seven. <laughs> seven out of seven with rice. Or is it seven out of five? No, that's just extreme. We are not that extreme. I score this civilization in 1867. Huh? There you go. <laughs> well, I'm thinking like it's at least as legit as the Praetorians as the <laughs> Roman unique unit and so far. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things where looking at this as a unique unit is almost like at the British unique unit being like the Beefeater Royal Guards. Well, I hope uh, diplomatic favor is really useful. Yeah, that's hard to answer that, isn't it? Because it's the uh, a new mechanic. Yeah, it's I have no idea know. how that's, how useful diplomatic favor is going to be, so it's really hard to have an opinion on Canada's ability because it's, aside from not being able to declare surprise wars, it's, so oh, you gain double diplomatic favor. Well, that's great. I don't know what that does. You're like, thanks, I guess... I will say about the leader bonus, allows farms to be built on tundra terrain. So, uh, between that and reducing the cost of purchasing snow, snow hills, etc., hmm, something tells me about start biases. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, not immune yeah. to blizzards. We hope you like tundra. Because <laughs> that would be too much. And it's like, allows farms to be built on tundra terrain. That's like, just because we can? If it allows it to be built on tundra terrain and gives us... So that's just an additional plus one food on top of Tundra? I, I, I'm not really sure how far we're going to get with that. Well, I mean, I guess if you're going to have a Tundra start bias, at least you can do something with it. It's not going to be one of those things with other civs where it's like, got to go find the first plains tile I can find and settle there. Okay, next Expeditionary Force likes civs who also respond to emergencies, dislikes who, who don't participate. Does that include emergencies against you, Canada? Uh. Uh, probably. <laughs> going by how the rest of the game operates, probably. Just like yes. how uh, Norway loves when you build that navy that you're going to use to conquer them. I think there's actually a good segue from Canada to the next thing to talk about with Gathering Storm, because the other part of the Four Faces of Peace special ability, receiving plus 100% diplomatic favor from successfully completing an emergency or scored competition. Speaking of scored competitions, what would a World Congress be if you didn't have World Fair and World Games? Woo! <laughs> also, I enjoy the description of World Games being an emergency. <laughs> <laughs> the Olympics are an emergency. Yeah, to your budget they are. <laughs> well, in that case, yeah. There's a lot of bits and pieces missing here, but apparently members will have access to train athletes projects. You gain score by completing the training athletes project, maintaining stadiums, and maintaining aquatic centers. And I'm sorry, but as I read this, I'm thinking my reward is score, and score means so much in Civ right now, I just, I'm all over that. Can you hear the sarcasm in my voice? I just... The player with the highest score will receive, it says, tour tourism for each campus, and then perhaps something else. I guess tour tourism for each campus, that really depends on when the world games come about, number one, and how difficult is it to pleading these projects and maintaining these stadiums and aquatic centers. I mean, by the time we get to stadiums, and I'm going to get two tourism from each campus, and that's just a campus, so I'm not really certain at this point how effective that's going to be, because that's just an absolute value as I'm reading this here is to tourism that might not really be that good you might be better investing in something else to get yourself tourism rather than participating in this game but I realize we're just getting a little kind of lukewarm on this notion I like the idea but the implementation still leaves a lot to be desired well it sounds like it's basically the same exact system as what was in Civ 5 I'm a little bit confused by maintaining stadiums and aquatic centers does this mean you have to actually do something to maintain them or does this mean you just have them yeah, are we going to have to put funds into them to so they're maintained, air quotes? 
yeah, is there going to be like a budget slider or something? Like, is this turning into SimCity? I don't, I don't know what this means. Oh uh, yeah, is there a cost per gold per turn to order to maintain these? Because it's, you know, it's not like you can build them and then sell the buildings. So right, like unless that's like a new mechanic, are they giving us the ability to choose to not spend gold per turn to maintain something and deactivate it or something like that without outright destroying it? Is this a new undocumented feature that they haven't told us about, or does this literally just mean have stadiums and aquatic centers i don't know if the competition if if they tied it a bit to diplomacy as well although the, and it comes up with like the request for aid here in a moment talks about you know diplomatic favor and diplomatic victory points but i don't know in the competition for world games if there was uh, i don't know someone that you were already friendly with and then you constructed the world games then maybe they're that much more friendly to you or, or something, because it just it seems to be in a vacuum. It just seems kind of like, well, it's a one-time shot. It's really not going to have any bearing whether I do this or not. And after I try it once in the game, it's like, well, okay, big deal. And, and I also wonder if having the stadium wonders would also contribute to this, the Coliseum and their stadium wonder that's at the end of the game. I forget how to pronounce it. Request for aid. Assist a civilization that has recently suffered a natural disaster. During this emergency... Okay, now this is an emergency. Members have access to the Send Aid Project. When time runs out, members will be rewarded based on their scores. Gain score by sending gifts of gold to the target and completing the Send Aid Project. Only the member with the highest score will receive one diplomatic victory point. Members within the top 25% of scores will receive 100 diplomatic favor. Members within the next 25% of scores will receive 50 diplomatic favor. And members with no score or who are in the bottom 50% of scores will receive nothing. So it is possible for you to contribute to this but receive nothing because it's relative to the effort of everybody else. Okay. I'm assuming the member with the highest score doesn't just receive the diplomatic victory point, that they would also receive the cumulative 150 diplomatic favor. And also diplomatic victory points. So how many do we need? Is there an explanation anywhere of how this supposed diplomatic victory works? Because I haven't seen anything like that on this. No. So there's diplomatic victory points. How many do we need? How else can we get a hold of them? Not a clue. Yeah. Well, the details on, the upside, on that are kind of important. On the upside, at least, it looks like this diplomatic victory is something that you actually like do over the course of the game, as opposed to it just being an election that just happens, and then you declare yourself winner. <laughs> Winner is me. A winner is you. So that sounds like it might be an improvement over the previous diplomatic victory mechanics that we've seen over the years in that it's, you know, more assertive. Call Call in in today. today. In North America, the number is 301-637-7659. That's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44121288-7659. That's 44121288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows Modcast, Revcast, and Turncast, or about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. Support the ongoing Polycast Patreon campaign. Collective achievements. Personal incentives. Month-to-month commitment. A thank you to lead patron Candace Albinus and all other supporters of the show through this measure. For more information, visit thepolycast.net slash Patreon.
I do believe that takes us to the end of the Christmas special. And as much as Polycast episode 327 was noting an end of an era, this is... Oh, this is truly an end for me. So I'm just going to say up front before I hand it over to Mackie to do the formal closing to our Christmas special surprise. I just want to thank everyone that has been on the show, regular panelist and guest, anyone in the audience, anyone who has contributed something, anyone who plays the game, quite honestly. If that didn't happen, then we wouldn't have something to talk about. So as I said before, it's been a privilege and an honor. I will not be a stranger. I will be back, but uh, I'm going to miss this and you're going to miss me. Thanks for assuming. I'm also a very humble person. (laughs) But uh, I know I'm leaving the show in good hands, and uh, I'll be listening. I will not be liking and subscribing, however, because that's not a meaningful measure of audience engagement. Uh, Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Dan. Well, this has been the Polycast Christmas special for 2018. Joined, as always, by... Thank you. Keep on seven. Me and team... You will, in fact, be missed, Dan. So long. Mega Bears fan. God save the Dan. Because <laughs> he's queen of our hearts? Or something Indeed, like that? The ultimate queen, Dan Q. <laughs> uh, we, just all, uh, we all wish that you have a very happy holiday season. Unless I missed it. Did you reintroduce yourself? Oh. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the Maggie who always needs the caffeine to do this kind of thing, because durr. So again... And for the last time, thanks all. Bye, Dan. Bye, Dan. Bye, Mackie. Bye, Phil. Bye, Jason. You're around. Good night, John boy. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh yeah, we did miss the period there. Although the oh, that gets rid of the floating palace. Thanks for bursting our bubble, Jason. Appreciate it. Glad to know you have a role on the show still. Um, hey, what? Gotta, gotta check the grammar, man. I'm like somebody. <laughs> yeah, I did miss, I missed the period too. Ho ho ho. As for Canada itself, you know what? I'm just gonna read the special abilities, the leader bonus, the historical agenda, talk about the unique stuff, and then I can say I talked about Canada by sticking strictly speaking to the facts, offering absolutely no opinion, if for no other reason than to better ensure that I will be invited on as a guest next year. So. <laughs> now, I don't know, why would you stop at third or fourth expansion? What about a fifth or a sixth one? We never get to Civilization Seven. we just keep adding expansions to Civ Six. I think the short answer probably will be... Just for access, like money. <laughs> it's in the game. <laughs> It's basically, yeah, guys, thanks for this expansion that still hasn't come out yet, but here's some other stuff I want in expansion. Record date December 15th. 2018. Music copyright here aboard. Music for creators. Copyright and civilized communication at civcom.net.